turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Last week, we made it halfway through verse 1. We hit pause. Because what we read was awesome. If you don't have a Bible, get a Bible, because you're going to want a Bible about halfway through the message. We made it halfway through verse 1. We had to stop. Because what we read was awesome in every sense of the word. There is, therefore, now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen and amen and amen. We could just close our Bibles and meditate on that for the next hour. And for the hour after that, and we could come back tomorrow and do it again. We could come back next week and do it some more. And every time we'd be amazed all over again. And in a sense, that's what we're going to do this morning. We're not going any further, not going any deeper in Romans 8. Instead, we're going to stare at what we've already read just a little longer. Ponder the truth and the triumph of verse 1. Going to get just a little deeper. Not because I originally planned to, but because last Sunday, some people asked me some questions. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. Love getting questions about the text that we're studying. Love, love getting questions about anything in the Bible, really, because the Bible is amazing. Many of you know that the supernatural design of the Bible, the fact that it is demonstrably from outside our space-time continuum, is how I came to Christ. I am always excited to get deeper in God's Word. So I love questions. And I, the questions that I get about a Sunday message or a Wednesday message tend to fall into three different categories. They're the practical questions, the theological ones, and for the sake of calling it something, I'm going to call the third category transformational questions. Practical questions are just what they sound like. How does this verse apply to my life? What do I do with this? How do I take this home and live this? Love those because it means someone is seeing the Bible not just as a book of knowledge and information, but as a book of wisdom, because that's how God intends it. Our, our Bible is the living word written and illuminated by a living God who loves us and wants to help us. He's deeply interested in our lives, and he wants to speak into them. I got a few practical questions last week, actually, most circling back to what we talked about at the beginning of Romans 5. Remember we said beginning of Romans 5, beginning of Romans 8, sort of reciprocal passages. And what we talked about at the beginning of Romans 5 was that Jesus died for both our guilt and shame. When we circle back to that in chapter 8, that's what Paul is saying. No condemnation. No fact of con condemnation. That's what guilt is. And we no longer need to feel condemnation. That's what shame is. And so some people were asking me practical questions. The answer was, read verse 1 again. Our guilt has been erased. Jesus has removed our guilt from us as far as the east is from the west. We just sang that. He has taken our sin as far, as, the, as far from us as the east is from the west. We need to stop chasing after it and trying to bring it back. And we need to stop punishing ourselves for sins Jesus already paid for, already died for. Sins he no longer, chapter 8, verse 1, condemns us for. Love the practical questions. What does God want to do with this? 
How is God using his word to speak into my life? also love the theological questions. I love the chewy ones that have to do with doctrine. I love the, the structural ones. Why did you put that in your message and not this? Why did you leave this part in and, and, and leave that part out? Love those questions because it shows me, it, it demonstrates, it encourages me that someone isn't relying on me and me alone to teach them the word. Do not rely on me and me alone to teach you the word. A lot of reasons for that. One is we're going slow. You might have noticed. Most Calvary pastors take an average of 20 years to teach through the Bible. I don't know that we're going to go that fast. Jesus might come back first. Don't rely on me to teach you the Bible. The other reason is you want to study it on your own. If you don't, you're ripping yourself off. Studying the Word on your own is the most profitable, and, and once you get into it, the most enjoyable way you could spend your time. It's the single best investment you could make in your life, in your family, in your ministry. Don't miss out on that. All of which to say, when someone asks me, hey, did you see that? Did you notice that? Did you do this on purpose? Man, that encourages me greatly because it tells me someone is studying along with me. They're reading, they're digging in, they're cross-referencing, they're listening to the Holy Spirit speaking. Someone asked me a question like that in the middle of last, week, in the middle of, of last Sunday afternoon. Hey, you stopped in the middle of verse 1. Were you stopping because you just wanted the singular focus to be on this idea of no condemnation? Or were you stopping because you know that's really where the period was supposed to be and the rest of the verse isn't supposed to be there? And I said, the first one, but the second one is also true. The rest of the verse isn't supposed to be there. And I love that someone was, was reading ahead, digging into the footnotes so that they knew that. So that they, they knew coming in that verse 1 should read, there is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, period. Paul was done with that thought. The rest of what's there in the New King James is one of those weird fragments that we get time to time that we attribute to a copyist error. Someone copied the Bible wrong from one page to another page. How do I know? Look down at verse 4. The same phrase that, that in your New King James is at the end of verse 1 mysteriously appears again at the end of verse 4. It doesn't fit in verse 1. It breaks the whole flow of, 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 of Paul's thought. fits perfectly in verse 4 because that's where it belongs. How else do we know that it wasn't supposed to be there? Probably the best way we know is the earliest manuscripts that we have of Romans don't include it. Also, the early church fathers writing about Paul's letter to the Romans, quoting from Paul's letter to the Romans, also make no mention of it. It's a copyist error. It's not a big thing. It doesn't affect any major doctrine. It's just one of those, those fragments that we say, yeah, the Bible is perfect and inerrant in the original manuscripts, we don't have the original manuscripts, but God has preserved his word so that we can recognize anomalies like this when, we pop up, when they pop up. So why didn't I talk about all of that last week was the question. Thought about it, but I decided it would just detract from what I knew the Lord wanted us to talk about, what he wanted us to focus on. To be sure, copyist errors are cool, geeky stuff. We're not here to geek out. We're here to hear from God. Hardest thing I do every week is pray through what does God want me to leave in and what does he want me to leave out? 
And every week I leave out some really cool stuff. But that's always going to be that way because the Bible is infinite. The Bible is the word of God. The deeper we get into it, the more we realize we haven't begun to plummet steps. The challenge is always in what not to say. But I still love the question. I love it in part because it lets me have my cake and eat it too. We can focus on what God calls us to focus on together, and then after I can geek out a little bit on the side. I'd actually planned to do that whole riff on the end of verse 1 today as part of the message I thought I would be teaching. I thought, you want, you want to make God laugh, you tell him your plans, right? I thought this morning we'd be looking at how Paul gets from verse 1 to verse 4. Because by the end of verse 4, he's talking about the Holy Spirit for the first time. For the first time in the letter. And that's his focus in chapter 8. So I thought that today would be getting from verse 1 to verse 4 and introducing what Paul has to say about the Holy Spirit. Not so much. That's not what we're doing. I planned to. But then someone asked me a third question. Practical? Theological? This one was transformational. And, and then that might be a dramatic word. It's the only one I could think of that ends with A-L. But the third category of question, this is, this is the one where someone blows my mind. Ask me something that makes me look at a passage in a whole different way, and that happened on Monday. Monday, someone called me. Let me, let me back up. If you were with us Sunday, you remember after, after we just, just stared at verse 1 and basked in its glory for a little bit, no, no, condem wow, no condemnation. After that, we spent the balance of our time talking about how to reconcile Paul's declaration that we are 100% permanently, eternally forgiven with John's admonition, 1 John 1, verses 8 through 10, that we need to confess sin to be forgiven. How can both of those be true at the same time? And what we recognized was Paul and John are talking about two different kinds of guilt. Judicial guilt, that's what Paul was talking about, parental guilt. That was John's subject. Paul's talking about forgiveness of judicial guilt, legal guilt. Paul's talking about the relationship that Jesus purchased on the cross that made us children of God, sons and daughters. John is talking about the relationship that we have as sons and daughters. Paul's talking about the fact of the relationship John's talking about the quality, the depth, the closeness of the relationship. That was Sunday. On Monday, someone reached out to me and said, do you think there should be a third category? I said, what do you mean? They said, well, remember how you said if we didn't believe John, we should go back to the words of Jesus when he was teaching us to pray. Because when Jesus was teaching us to pray, he said, Father... We're to call God Father. We're to come to him as sons and daughters. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Father, forgive me for the stuff that I've done. Forgive me in the same way, in the same manner, to the extent that I've forgiven people who did stuff against me. I said, okay, what's your question? They said, isn't that another kind of guilt? And doesn't that come with some pretty heavy implications? Jesus is saying, if we don't forgive people for their relational guilt, the guilt they have for the stuff they did to us, we won't be forgiven for our 
guilt, the stuff that we've done that gets between us and God. If we don't forgive sins against us, God takes it as sin against him. I get that's not a new idea. But for me, at least, the, the question brought that idea into a brand new context. Putting that side by side with the no condemnation concept of Romans 8.1 made my mind explode. Romans 8.1, no condemnation, free from legal guilt, judicial guilt. Sin against God's law, forgiven. Jesus died for it, we're free forever. And we said that was in contrast to 1 John 1, verses 8 through 10, which is parental guilt, the sins that we still sin against God and, that still, and the sins we still need to confess or the muck up our relationship with God until we do. It, it seems, and I realized I was thinking this without knowing that I was thinking this, it seems like there should be a third category. There's sin against God's law. There's sin against God the Father, what would make sense, what I, what I was sort of thinking about without knowing that I was thinking about it, sins against others. Deal with the first by confessing our need for the cross, by asking Jesus to be our Savior. That's how we deal with judicial guilt. Deal with parental guilt by confessing our sin to God. So we deal with the third by confessing to the person and asking their forgiveness. Except no. I mean, I mean, yes, we should. We should, and the Bible assumes that we do. Jesus, if, if you read the words of Jesus, it's pretty clear. He assumes that we will ask forgiveness of one another for the sins that we commit against each other. But I can only think of one verse in the whole New Testament that tells us that. James 5.16 is the only verse I can think of that specifically tells us, confess your sin to one another. And pray for one another that you may be healed. That's it. One verse. Every other verse that I can think of concerning the sins that we sin against each other assumes that we're going to repent, assumes we're going to confess, but doesn't say it, just assumes it and leaves it at that. What every verse I can think of, other than James 5.16, focuses on is, is, is instead of confessing and repenting to each other, the subject is forgiving one another. Jesus turns it around 180 degrees from what might seem normal and natural to us. Read, read the New Testament backward and forward. Look at it inside and out. Jesus never emphasizes confessing the sins that we sin against one another to each other. He assumes we will, but he doesn't make a point of it. What he makes a point of again and again is forgiving the sins we sin against one another. And you know the verses. Matthew 5, 23. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there, when you get there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother. Forgive him. And then come and offer your gift. Matthew 18, 21. Peter says, Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive? Verse 22, Jesus says 70 times 7. Do the math. Except that's not about math. It's as many times as you need to. As many times as it takes. As many times as he confesses is how many times you can forgive. Why? We know the answer to that too. 
Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. How? Even as God in Christ has forgiven you. Colossians 3.13 says the same thing more strongly. Because in general, Colossians says the same thing Paul's already said, but more strongly. Bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If every, anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so often you must do. Again and again. Again and again in Scripture. Again and again from Jesus, we see this emphasis. This, this connectedness between forgiveness and forgiving. Having been forgiven, Jesus calls us to forgive. Forgive the people who hurt us. Forgive the people who hurt us for the things that they did to us. Forgive them. Whether they come to us or not. Whether they're sorry or not. Oh, here's where we get stuck, yeah? You were with me right up to that point, and then all of a sudden we're bogged down in the mud. They haven't apologized. They aren't sorry. They won't even acknowledge what they did to me. There's no way I'm going to forgive them. There's no way I'm going to forgive them until that they God can't expect me to. Yet, he kind of does. In fact, he really does. In every one of those verses that I just read, our, obliga our obligation to forgive is just that. It's an obligation. It's an absolute. In Matthew and Ephesians and Colossians, every one I read, dozens more I could read. God's instruction to forgive is just as absolute as what we read in Romans 8, 1. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no sin that you and I are not called to forgive. Put those ideas side by side. It's a mind blower. Again and again, without condition, without qualification, without limit, God says to us, renounce your right to justice, lay down your claim to vengeance, having been forgiven much, forgive much. Having been forgiven all, forgive all. There's no condemnation against you. There should be no condemnation coming forth from you. I actually think one reason the Bible doesn't say much about asking for forgiveness, just assumes that we will and moves on. God doesn't want us to get hung up there. He doesn't want it to be a sticking point. He doesn't want to put anything out there that, that, that we could twist and turn and get legalistic about. See, it, it, it says we're supposed to confess and he hasn't confessed. So as long as he hasn't done what he's supposed to do, I'm not going to do what I'm supposed to do. Except the Holy Spirit very carefully very deliberately, because the Holy Spirit doesn't do anything accidentally, the Holy Spirit very specifically doesn't give us anything that could be taken to mean that or even close to that. Engineers his word so that we'd be left with one simple instruction. Not easy, but simple. Not complicated. Straightforward. Forgive. What happens if we don't? Well, that brings us back to our question. Are there three categories? There's judicial guilt, breaking the law of God. There's parental guilt, we might say betraying the love of God. Is there relational guilt, 
not acting in the character of God, not forgiving the people who sin against us? Maybe is the best answer. If, I, I tend to think that, that that third category, that relational guilt, is, is not so much a third category as a subset of parental guilt, but you, know, you do you. Either way, we got to talk about it. Because the Bible talks about some pretty heavy implications if we carry that kind of guilt, whatever category we put it in. The Bible's got some tough things to say about what happens if we fail to forgive. Last week, last week in 1 John 1, verses 8 through 10, we were a little vague. I was a little vague about what happens if we let sin go unconfessed. And I was vague because the Bible is vague. We can say, we see so we can say, unconfessed sin hinders our relationship with God. And, and we can get there, we can think about how, you know, when there's something between you and, and, and another person that hinders the relationship. So we can get there by analogy. Unconfessed sin hinders the relationship, it gets in the way. It, it's hard to get more concrete than that. One commentator that I read talked about it this way. He said, you know, at our best, we still see God how? As through a glass dimly. Paul writing to the Corinthians. We, we see God at best now, today, as through a glass dimly. He said, don't confess sin. Let unconfessed sin pile up. That's like your windshield wiper is broken. And all of a sudden, instead of seeing through the windshield dimly through the rain, now you're not seeing anything at all. Hard to see God, hard to hear from God. And I think that that works. I think that that makes the point. But here's the thing. Unconfessed sin of any kind hinders our relationship with God. The sin we, 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 we won't confess, yeah, that has, that has consequences. The unforgiveness, the sin we won't forgive in others, which becomes our sin, unforgiveness is sin, when it comes to that, the Bible gets real concrete, real fast. Matthew 6, if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Says it again in Mark. If you do not forgive, Mark eleven twenty six, 26, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Luke 6, 37, forgiven you will be forgiven. The unspoken implication, if you don't forgive, you won't be. All three synoptic gospels, the same thing. Makes it pretty clear. Any unconfessed sin is a hindrance to our relationship with God, but unforgiveness is a stopper. Puts it on pause. Doesn't change our salvation. Our salvation is a function of trusting in Jesus' death on the cross. Nothing less, nothing more. Paul could say no condemnation in Romans 8.1 because Jesus said to die on the cross. So again, unforgiveness doesn't change the fact of our relationship. If we've gone to the cross, God is our Father, we are His children. If we've gone to the cross, God is our Father, we are His sons and daughters. But if having been forgiven much, we refuse to forgive, God the Father will chasten us. He'll treat us as the children that we are, and he'll punish us to teach us and correct us. And God spells that out at the end of Matthew 18. And this is, where I, this is why I wanted you to have a Bible and turn to Matthew 18. 
right after Jesus freaks Peter out with the whole 70 times 7 thing. That's verse 21. Matthew 18, 23, Jesus launches into a story about a servant who owed 10,000 talents. And commentators like to bicker about how much a talent was. I found one commentator who says, well, a talent is a year's wage. Another says, well, it's 15 years wage. Let's use the 15 years number. 10,000 talents. Let's say a year's wage is $50,000 just for the sake of a round number. 10,000 talents is 150 years of wage. That's $7.5 billion. Whether that's exactly right or not, the, the idea is clearly on that scale. The idea, the concept, he owed more than he could possibly pay in, in multiple lifetimes. So the king, verse 27, his master took pity on him, forgave the debt. And we know the story. The next thing that happens is that that same man, the man who's been forgiven, comes across another man, comes across a servant who owes him a lesser amount. And if you use the same kind of a math uh, approach, it, it's something like $17,000. Instead of $7.5 billion, which is like an initial public offering of a tech company, this is a car loan. Verse 28 the guy says, will you forgive the loan or will you at least give me more time? And he says, no, no, no. In fact, I'm calling the loan due. Please give me more time. No, I want the money now. I can't pay you the money now. Well, then you're going to be in prison until you do. Which means he never will because how do you make money in prison? We're familiar with the story. And we know because we're familiar with the story, the king is God. We know because Jesus starts off saying, this is what the kingdom of God is like. We know the servant is us, we're the ones who have been forgiven much. We've been forgiven more than we could possibly pay. And we know the moral of the story is we really should forgive each other. That would be a good and gracious thing to do. That would be a nice thing to do, Christ-like even. We should forgive each other. Except, no, that's not the moral of the story. <laughs> the moral of the story, if you read to the bottom of the chapter, the moral of the story is we need to forgive each other or else. Or else what? Hopefully you have your eyes on Matthew 18. Start in verse 30 and read with me. Servant refuses to forgive the man's debt, throws the fellow servant in prison. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him. Underline that verse. His master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him. Verse 35, Jesus says, I don't want you to misunderstand, so I'm going to explain this to you. I'm going to interpret the parable for you. Jesus says, so here's the moral. Here's the point. So, in the same way, my heavenly Father, who's also your heavenly Father, also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Now, that's not talking about hell. I know I've said that, but I can't emphasize it enough. This is not talking about hell, but it's also not just talking about the Bema Seat of Christ either. You might have heard that. You might have been taught that. I might have said that. If I do, I repent. 
Because it doesn't say the servant just lost privileges or rewards or crowns. That would be nice, but that's not what it says. It says he was turned over to the torturers for punishment. There's no way to read that other than when we refuse to forgive sin, sin against us, God lifts his hand of protection from us. Who are the torturers in this world? Satan and his minions. How do we know? Book of Job and a bunch of other places. Who protects us from the torturers of this world? God, obviously, until he doesn't. What we just read is when God wants to chastise us, when he wants to punish us in order to teach us, when he wants to punish us in order to correct us, one of the tools in his toolbox is to let Satan and his minions have his way with us. How long? Until we forgive. How does that make sense? I mean, I get it. If I sin against God, then God and I have a thing. But if I sin against Dakota, or if I sin against Hector, then isn't that between us? Isn't that something that we have to sort out? Why does God have to get involved in that? And Jesus just answered our question. What is our relationship with God based on? Where does it come from? Any answer that you give begins and ends with forgiveness. Grace, yes, but how did Jesus manifest his grace to us? Through forgiveness. We're saved. We're forgiven by grace through faith. But our relationship with God, the gateway to it is forgiveness. I heard a pastor say this week, if you cut the gospel anywhere, it bleeds forgiveness. I like that. I thought that was a really articulate, eloquent way of putting it. It's one of those things that the more you think about, the more layers you see, right? The more dimensions. If you cut the gospel, it bleeds forgiveness. Why is our unforgiveness such a big deal to God? Because our whole relationship with him is based on forgiveness. You ever have a relationship with someone, friend, family, personal, professional, they, they, you, you thought you were close. You thought you were your bros. You were simpatico. And then one day, out of nowhere, they do something, they say something that makes it clear they don't know you at all. Have you had that experience? Maybe you even looked at them and said, it's like you don't even know me. It's like you've never met me. That's God's response when we don't forgive. Don't you know do you not comprehend I created this universe and everything in it, including you, specifically to showcase my forgiveness? Do you not get that? If you don't get that, you don't get me. If you don't see that, you don't know me. When we don't forgive, first of three points, it affects our walk, our walk with God, our relationship with God. Because how can it not? Second thing, when we don't forgive, it affects our witness. Because why are we here? Made this point last week, but it's worth making again. God could have raptured us home at the moment of our salvation. When we said yes to the cross, that, that chasm between us and God who created us was eliminated. Why didn't he? Why didn't a loving God bring us to heaven instead of leaving us here where, where you know, life hurts? 
Why are we here? To help others find what we have found. We're the beggars pointing the other beggars to the bread. We're here to help others find the forgiveness that we have found in Christ Jesus. But how can we do that? How can we do that persuasively? How can we do that with integrity? How can we do that with any credibility at all? How can we share a gospel of forgiveness if we ourselves are not all about forgiveness? You need to be forgiven, but I'm not going to forgive him for that. You need forgiveness, but I'm not going to give, forgive her for this. I mean, that, that, that's the very definition of a mixed message, isn't it? When we don't forgive, we're not only working against ourselves, we're working against God, and we're working contrary to the mission that God has put us on. You've heard me say how many times, hurt people hurt people. Hurt people hurt people. It's a fact of life. We expect it. What Jesus teaches us is that forgiven people forgive people. He expects it. He expects that of us. Forgiven people are supposed to forgive people. When we don't, it affects our walk. It affects our witness. Third point, if you need one, I don't know if you do, but third point, it affects the work. The work of God that we're supposed to be about together. I read a pastor recently, he was talking about the church, and he pointed out something interesting. Disturbing, I guess is a better word. How many churches do you know that started off as an intentional, prayerful ministry as opposed to churches that began as the result of a church split? And it's kind of sobering if you think about it. And obviously the same is true or truer for denominations. So many born of unforgiveness. And a lot of times I thought this was interesting. He goes on to make the point that split or that, that spin-off or, or the faction that doesn't leave but decides to just stay and exude bitterness, a lot of times is reacting to something that didn't even happen in the community of believers as it currently exists. Sometimes a pastor comes into a fellowship and the congregation is maybe still hurting over what happened with the last pastor. Meanwhile, the new pastor shows up nursing his own wounds from what happened in his last church. And what happens? Hurt people hurt people. Everyone ends up paying the price for someone else's unforgiveness that originated in a different community. And that's not just pastors and congregants. That's church people and church people. When we don't forgive the person who hurt us, we end up bleeding on someone who didn't cut us. I didn't think of that, but if you've never heard it, I want you to, I want you to capture it. When we don't forgive the person who hurt us, we end up bleeding on people who didn't cut us. And if we don't figure out that that's what's happening, the cycle is going to repeat. The wound from here spills out in the community there, and the wound there spills out in the community there. And the stories of church hurt multiply and metastasize, and the world looks on and says, the peacemakers are at it again. I stole that line from a book called Forgiving Forward by Bruce Hable, who 
who goes on to point out something that we all know but sometimes try to forget. The blood of Jesus Christ covers all sin. Yeah. Yeah, the blood of Jesus Christ covers all sin, including the sin that gets sinned against me. Which means the way to restore our walk and our witness and our work is to go back to Romans 8.1 and believe it. Embrace it. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That necessarily means there should be no condemnation coming from those who are in Christ Jesus. Only forgiveness. And sometimes I think we make that harder than it needs to be. What is forgiveness? If we look at it from an accounting perspective, it's, it's writing off a debt. It's renouncing the right to collect something that we're owed. It's not saying the debt wasn't legitimate. It's not saying the cost wasn't incurred, that it, that it wasn't real. It just, it's just saying it's better to let it go than to force someone to pay. When we forgive sin, same exact thing. Not saying the wrong wasn't wrong. Not saying the hurt wasn't real or, or that the results weren't egregious. It's just a decision to not retaliate. Not retaliate actively, not retaliate passive-aggressively. It's a choice to forsake vengeance. It's the decision that's what's more important than justice is being like Jesus, who died to forgive us, who died to forgive those who sinned against us. It's up to them whether they avail themselves of that or not. But his death is still sufficient for it. Jesus died to forgive sin, including the sin of those who sin against us. Jesus died to forgive sin, including ours, by the way. Including ours. Footnote, but an important footnote. Sometimes the hardest sins for us to forgive are the sins that we sin against ourselves. There's a double whammy there, right? The sin committed against me, by me. What do I do with that? Uh, if I'm not careful, I let it mess up my walk, my witness, and the work of God. As much or more than not forgiving others. Got to remember, everything that Jesus says about forgiveness, about uh, the, 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 when someone offends us, still applies when the offender is us. If we forget that, if we keep ourselves at arm's length from that, instead of our lives being a declaration of the freedom that we found in Christ, our lives are the opposite of that. Instead of our lives being a declaration of the freedom we found in Christ, we show people that we're still hurt, that we're still held captive, that we're still deeply bitter in spite of Christ. Instead of saying, look at my life, see what Jesus has done, see what Jesus can do, what he is doing. When we don't forgive ourselves, we're saying, look at me and see what Jesus can't do. Look at me and see the limits of his blood. How do we break that cycle? We've talked about this before. We preach the gospel to ourselves. We start by asking ourselves, Whatever sin it is that I'm carrying around and can't let go of, still, still feeling guilty about and burdened by, did Jesus pay for it? It's a yes-no question. You don't even have to know what it is. Did Jesus pay for it 
Whatever it is, you know the answer is, yeah. Was his death sufficient for it? Yes. Is God satisfied by his, his death? Was his blood enough for God? So why isn't it enough for us? No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. If it's enough for God, it's got to be enough for us. Surely we can't have higher standards than the most high. If God is satisfied, we're forgiven. We've got to be satisfied. Or, or, or else, what are we talking about when we talk about the gospel? We say Jesus plus anything is nothing. We say Jesus plus nothing is everything. That's what we tell people. We've got to remember to tell ourselves, Jesus is enough. His death is enough. His blood is enough. His sacrifice is enough. He's enough for our friends and family. We're convinced he's enough for the stranger that we, we meet on the street and, 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 and put a tract in their hand. If he's enough for them, he's enough for us. Jesus is enough. Because he's enough, we've got to forgive ourselves. Now turn it around and apply the same logic. Because he's enough, we've got to forgive those. We've got to believe he's enough for those who sin against us. Three categories of questions at the top of the message. The first was, how do I make this practical? What, 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 what do I do with what I've heard this morning? Today, that's simple. One word. Forgive. It's not that simple. It is that simple. It may not be easy. It's exactly that simple. Forgiven people forgive people. That's not an option. That's an expectation that Jesus has. How many times does he have to say it to convince us? Forgiveness isn't like rust-proofing or cruise control or the tow package. It's not an option. It's a requirement. It's an instruction. Yeah, it's a commandment. Which means to ignore it is sin. Unforgiveness is sin. Hurts the people around us, hurts us. That's what sin does. Sin hurts in 360 degrees, probably more than we know. That's why I can't forgive. No. <laughs> we want to make forgiveness and unforgiveness about them. We want to make it about our relationship with the person who hurt us. The thing is, it's not. Forgiveness is about a relationship with Jesus who forgave us. Forgiveness is about what we believe about Jesus and how much we value the forgiveness that we've received. How much we value Him. We need to choose to forgive based on that, based on Him. Need to, get to, got to. And we worship Him every time we do. It's an act of worship when we forgive. Because every time we do, remember that He did. Every time we do, we remember that He does. Every time we do, we remember that he will. We remember who Jesus is and we declare it. Jesus is the one who forgives sin. Okay, but Patrick, it's still a process. It depends what you mean. Process in a sense that I forgive him and then a while later I realize some bitterness has crept back in so I forgive him again. And a while later, I realized, yeah, my heart's getting hard again, so I forgive him again. If you mean process like that, I'm with you. I'll go with you there. My, my dad's been gone 25 years, and I had to start forgiving him long before that. 
Sometimes I still have to. Sometimes I wake up and it's like I'm back at square one. So if you mean process like that, if you mean that it's, it's iterative, you do it and you do it again and you do it, okay, I'm with you there. I'm also with you if you mean reconciliation is a process. Because reconciliation and forgiveness are two different things. Reconciliation is a commandment to us unilaterally. Forgive whether someone else is repentant or not. Reconciliation, that's a dance that takes two to tango. For reconciliation to happen, I have to show up with a ticket that says I'm forgiving. The other person has to show up with a ticket that says I'm repenting. That's, that's what it takes to restore a relationship. And if you want to tell me that that's a process, amen, sister. But if you say forgiveness is a process and what you mean is I need time before I can start, it'll be a while before I'm ready, then I'm going to say no. It's not a process like that. It doesn't have to be. In fact, it shouldn't be. Forgiveness isn't a process in that sense. It's a decision. Let me prove it to you. You're sharing the gospel with someone. You're talking to them about Jesus and how his death on the cross purchased forgiveness of their sins. And they say, that sounds great. But first I need to get my life cleaned up. First I need to stop doing crimes. First I need to start being a good person. Then I'll be ready to be saved. What do you say? What's your response? Nuh-uh. No, you don't have to get ready for forgiveness or prepare for forgiveness. You just have to decide you want to be forgiven. Amen? What do we say to that person? We say, you know what? When you choose forgiveness, when you decide you're ready for Jesus to forgive you, he will begin the process of healing your wounds, of cleaning you up, of getting you out what you're into. The decision begins the process, not the other way around, never the other way around. When someone says they're not ready to be saved, what are they doing? They're staring at their sin instead of the cross. And the longer we stare at our sin, the bigger it gets. When we say we're not ready to forgive, we're doing the same thing. We're staring at the wound. We're staring at the hurt. We're staring at the person who caused the wound and the hurt instead of looking to the healer. And we tell ourselves, well, eventually I'll be ready. But, but it's usually the opposite, right? Usually the longer we stare at what happened and who did it and what resulted from it, the less likely we are to forgive. Because whatever we're staring at gets big in our eyes. Whatever we're staring at is the most real thing to us. Whatever we're staring at is what's important to us. If we stare at our hurt, that's what's important. That becomes the non-negotiable thing, the unforgivable thing, because it's so huge. How do we get out of that? Shift our focus. Change where we're looking. Stare at Jesus instead. Meditate on what happened to him. Consider his wounds, his hurt. And think about the people who caused his wounds and his hurt. Because it was us. Shift our focus from the hurt to the healer, and decide forgiven people 
forgive people. And we're going to be one of them. We're going to celebrate communion this morning. We're going to do it because Pastor Dave is here next week. He's going to stay after the men's retreat and share on Sunday morning. And I want to give him room to, to, to take the service as he sees fit. But we're going to celebrate communion this morning because it fits. I mean, it's just a natural, right? The Lord's table gives us an opportunity to practice everything we've been talking about. As the ushers distribute the bread and the cup, they draw our attention to Jesus' wounds. That's what they're designed to do. That's why Jesus gave us this ordinance, this observance. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Look at the bread and think back to the striping, to the piercing in my side, in my hands, in my feet, the crown of thorns driven down against the bone of my skull like fish hooks. Look at the bread. Remember my body pierced and scourged. Look at, look at the wine. Look at the juice. And remember my blood poured out. Why? For you, for your sin, for your forgiveness. Let's allow communion to take us there, to take our thoughts there, to bring our heart there. And when we're there, let's allow it to take us to the application of the cross that Jesus has for us. Because of the cross, because of his wounds, because of his death, we're forgiven. And we can forgive. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, but the Spirit of Christ dwells in those who belong to Jesus. And the Spirit of Christ is the Spirit of forgiveness, the Spirit of giving, it's the Spirit of love. It's the spirit that says others. As Hector comes up, we're going to do two songs, I think. Meditate on the cross. Let Jesus grow large in your eyes. Let your wounds, your wounds, grow small. And let forgiveness become an imperative.